This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, was made possible by Global Blood Therapeutics and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Visit gbt.com to learn more. Welcome back, Cheat Codes listeners, for another episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast. Dr. Callahan, how are you today? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Dr. Z? Fantastic. Fantastic. You know why? I do know why. I'm going to tell you anyway. It's because, <laughs> you know, there's certain people in our field who we recognize as important, who we recognize as um, prominent, right? But but today's guest is, is a little more than that. Today's guest is kind of like a personal hero of mine, too. He's everywhere, right? Everybody knows our guest. And su- such a nice guy and so so accomplished. I mean, I, I was trying to do a little research about what we could talk about today, and it's endless. So I think it's going to be a great, great discussion. Another another great guest. We're re- really excited to talk to. Dr. Lakshmanan Krishnamurthy, who is the Section Director of Bone Marrow Transplant, the Chair of Blood and Marrow Transplant at the Aflac Cancer and Blood Disorder Center at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Professor of Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine. My goodness, I am just so, so honored that you are here with us today. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's uh, very easy. Both of you are heroes of mine. So I just love being here So and love talking to you. And I love the work you're doing. Uh, getting to the community is a very, very big deal. So congratulations and kudos for the work you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. You know, I think that the best place to start always is at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your journey towards medicine. Did you always know you were going to be a doctor? What what drove you towards medicine? Yeah, I decided in second grade that I was going to be a doctor because of a book I read. So I guess in second grade at the time, there was some expectation to read books. I got some first graders. What's that book? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I thought that, uh, you know, it was a uh, I was very moved by something I read uh, in somebody who was a saint and a physician and who said it was a great way to serve humanity. And so even though, you know, my interests and uh, skills probably lay elsewhere, I was going to be a doctor always. Amazing. Yeah. Where does that story start for you? You were in India, right? Yeah, I was born in India. I was an Air Force brat. So my dad was in the Air Force. I joined a uh, very uh, uh, outstanding medical school, which is very, very difficult to get into, was run by the military. And this, of course, is the Armed Forces Medical College. Armed Forces Medical College. And, you know, it was like a, a very, very competitive to get in. And they paid my way and or joined the military. And I was uh, basically on a track to be there for 40 years and retire as a three-star general. That's what my classmates ended up doing. Wow. But it didn't go that way. <laughs> So could we call you General Krish? Yeah, my I have seven classmates who are called <laughs> generals. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yes. Okay. So so you started out there, and mm-hmm. and and tell us a little bit about your experience during. I mean, at your time at the Armed Forces Medical College. It's are there, fantastic. Are there? Yeah. Tell mm-hmm. us. Go ahead. It's fantastic because you know the the military gives you a whole other side um, or the meaning of leadership. You know, because no other job is people placed in under your command that you're responsible for them in entirety. You know, and then that's a lesson that they live every day. And the second thing is how you take care of patients is your patient is your brother in arms. Okay, mm-hmm. so there's not that difference. So it's very personal. Wow. And, and so your patient's child, you know, was your brother soldier's child. Uh, so those are very unique things, uh, you know, in the military. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. Those, so, are, those are those are gems. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, I never knew I was going to get that, but you know, going there. At this time, yeah. So I want to keep in mind the, the sickle cell story that builds here. So at this point, had sickle cell crossed your radar in medical no, school? No, not at all. You know, uh, 25% of the patients with sickle cell disease are born in India. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people in India, you could do 25% and fill in the blanks for anything, right? 
because uh, 16% of the 18% of the world lives in India. And sickle cell disease, and you know, the very, I, I don't have a good explanation why in every part of the world it affects the most disadvantaged. And, and so it does in India. So you could grow up in a big city like New Delhi, like where I grew up in, or go to, you know, do uh, your uh, pediatric residency in a big city like Mumbai and maybe never see a sickle cell patient uh, with these wow. many sickle cell patients in the world because it's in the hinterland and in these aboriginal populations and, you know, is where sickle cell is very common in India. I was uh, doing a pediatric residency because I wanted to be a pediatrician and that's what it was going to be. Really came across hematology and I actually went to a hematology lecture where they talked about how, you know, these inherited disorders of blood like thalassemia and sickle cell disease, how genetic counseling can dramatically impact, you know, people's decisions to have a child or, uh, you know, how in Cyprus, they had pretty much had no more births with thalassemia. So I was very impressed by that. And I decided I was going to be a hematologist. And so that's how, you know, I was uh, already sort of going off in a different direction. And, and when I was in the military, I had a lot of time because, you know, mostly your uh, people are pretty healthy. That's why they're in the military. Right. And I would go on my own time and work at the biggest, you know, uh, research uh, hospital in India, in New Delhi. And I really opened my eyes to thalassemia and sickle cell disease. And, you know, the awareness is so much, uh, even though, you know, they don't have a concept of chronic illness in a society like that. You know, there's a lot of stigma uh, if you have children with chronic illness. But I could see the anguish and the desperation in their eyes. I would go in for their monthly transfusion and they would pull up papers, you know, uh, published in the West and say, do we have this drug available? Uh, you know, for our patients. Uh, I don't know where they got, this was before the internet, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a lot of dedication to find those papers. There was, it was a lot of dedication. Wow. And, you know, there was uh, one patient that I would come back, I would uh, see them every month and every month he would say, so doctor, what is new? Since we last met, I'm like, <laughs> you're getting another unit of blood. <laughs> Unfortunately, nothing new, but that was the, uh, level of desperation. And then I would talk to them and they would say, uh, so I'd say, so how are you doing today? He said, well, I have two children with this chronic illness. I am not fit to show my face anywhere. You know, wow. what better, you know, that's a description of stigma. Wow. And then uh, I keep on, you know, in my youthful, you know, uh, pigheadedness. So one time this uh, child was coming for transfusion, his aunt, you know, his uh, mother's sister came and I said, so uh, you're not married. So have you got screened? You know, have you got a electrophoresis done? You know, sort of. Yeah. So the next time the child comes with the mother and the mother says, so you're the doctor who talked to my sister. I said, yeah, I'm the doctor, you know. And she said, you don't want her to get married. Oh, no. I, I'm like, what did I do wrong here? Oh, no. That was a stigma about, there's awareness and there's stigma about genetic disorders. And there was, I saw the anxiety, the, the distress and the hopelessness. And mm. so I decided I was going to give up this wonderful job and I was going to go to the part in the world where they cured this disease and learn how to do it. <laughs> you know? wow. So I just, with great difficulty, gave up my lifelong job <laughs> and we ended up in Minnesota. <laughs> so, wow. So, oh, wow. Well, so that really sets the context for me. Yeah. So you, you, end, you end up in Minnesota and that's where you do your pediatric residency and fellowship. Yeah, I did my fellowship first because I'd already been working in hematology and they said, well, you know, you want to get certified, board certified, so do a year of residency and then stay on in the faculty. So that's how it all happened, you know. And, and th there. this was one of the strongest transplant programs it and was. specifically around non-malignant transplants. Well, they did, they were really innovative. You know, they did first uh, immunology transplants. They did some of the first Fanconi anemia transplants. But, you know, Minnesota at the time was 97% white. 
Um, so they didn't have much in the way of sickle cell disease. And here I show up and say, my interest is in sickle cell disease. Yeah. There wasn't any sickle cell to be had, you know, over there. I did basic science in sickle cell disease, worked in the lab. And, and so my program director said, you, how did you become a sickle cell expert? We didn't have any sickle cell to train you on. <laughs> so they said that, you know, another expert, anybody interested in sickle cell is not going to show up here. And you stay on here and start transplant for sickle cell disease. That was my first faculty job in Minnesota. And and then you, you started something that I, th I think is becoming really of interest again, which was trying to get rid of some of the prep regimen, trying to get rid of some of the toxic stuff. And I, I think one, uh, not very many people have early papers in the New England Journal, but yeah, many I, years ago. I was just at the right place at the right time that, you know, the notion that this is sort of a slash and burn, you know, bone marrow transplant. And so there were some early papers coming out of, you know, how can we reduce the chemotherapy uh, for these patients? And so there was a reduced intensity conditioning. And then I think that because of the, it was a strength of the program that they could see, even this young person had some potential and could guide us in a new direction. And so it was my privilege uh, to have been there and to be part of the story of you know, advancing transplant a little bit uh, in Minnesota. Uh, that was really a wonderful experience. And so the, you were in Minnesota fellowship and a little bit of residency and then yeah. as an attending and, and doing yeah, transplant. I was on the faculty there for, for three years. And then I decided I didn't just want to be a transplanter for sickle cell. I wanted really to be a sickle cell doctor as well, that I really enjoyed that. Even as a resident, I realized that, you know, the very, we had a very few patients with sickle cell disease. But believe me, you have one patient or 1,000 patients. The problems that surround sickle cell disease are there in the exact same proportion. You know, I don't need to repeat this for this audience, what all they were. And I found myself being the advocate with the few patients uh, you know, so I realized that I really wanted to get into all of those aspects of, of sickle cell disease. And so that's why I, you know, with great reluctance, decided to to, to leave Minnesota and, and go somewhere else where I could uh, build myself a sickle cell program. And, and because I ended up everywhere having to build programs, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm, you know, this works for me. And so I ended up in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Right, you know where uh, uh, it's a it's a lovely place. I didn't realize how friendly and uh, you know and a wonderful place it was. And uh, they had uh, you know a good number of sickle cell patients. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania supports newborn screening pretty well, um, so I could see that there was a lot of potential there. So I basically spent the next thirteen years in in Pittsburgh building the program, building my own you know understanding that you can't do physical medicine without, you know, behavioral health, you know, integrating that. And that, you know, we're all schooled and taking care of patients in the hospital setting, but people live in the real world. You know, the only people who live in the hospital are people like you and I. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we spend our entire adulthood there. And really was wonderful, uh, you know, when a parent came and said, I don't want other people to walk in the shoes that I'm walking in, what should I do? And I said, like one of my mentors had said, well, why don't you start a foundation? And, you know, Andrea Williams started the Children's uh, Sickle Cell Foundation. And, uh, you know, I had lots of uh, collaborations with her and other community-based organizations. Uh, you know, HRSA decided to fund sickle cell at the time. So for the next 12 cycles, you know, we were funded by HRSA. And PCORI started funding sickle cell. We did that. And so I was always dividing my time between doing sickle cell, you know, being the director of the sickle cell program, taking care of patients. And this was everything that I'd learned in the military of all around care on the Air Force Base. That's how my sickle cell experience felt like, you know. People, you know, come to Western Pennsylvania for two things. They go to go to school and they go there to go to jail. Did you know that? No. Because in the state of Pennsylvania, all the child and adolescent, uh, you know, sort of interning or jail type facilities were 
in Pittsburgh. And so I actually had a following in both of these groups. If people came to go to college, you know, I would see those patients. And because these were the people who had so many things that were wrong with their lives. It was a wonderful experience to longitudinally follow all of those patients. Um, and, you know, at, along the way, I uh, helped so many trainees. I had 14 genetic counseling students over that time. You know, wow. I like people who, uh, you know, fellows who, uh, uh, my, uh, Dr. Bakshi were just talking to, mm-hmm. you know, has been my, you know, for 10 years we've been working together. You know, so it was just a wonderful experience all around being in sickle cell and, you know, understanding the patient voice. You know. We did try to steal you from Pittsburgh at one time to come be the boss here I know, in Detroit, I know. but you were too smart for that. Yeah, it was but, just, uh, but I got to meet guys like you. <laughs> and so I've been a fan of Dr. Callahan ever since. Uh, so, yeah. No, it's uh, every time I see you, you have new trainees working with you. You always seem to be working with a fellow or resident. They're presenting something at ASFO, at FSCDR, at, yeah. and uh, it's it's great. I think that's how we keep the field going and get more people involved. Yeah, I mean, it's because you took somebody like Amar Zaidi, you know, in, in, in hand that we, you know, we have a superstar like that. You know, I, I think that we all owe this, right? You know, the I mean, I owe it to John Wagner who decided, you know, in Minnesota that this guy who keeps talking at the water cooler that we should be transplanting, you know, <laughs> sickle cell wow. should really be given a chance. And so we're just passing forward, you know, what we got from others. So it's been wonderful. And I had long since decided I wasn't going anywhere till my former boss from Minnesota, Bill Woods, called me one day and said, you kept talking about wanting to cure sickle cell. Do you want to come and do this on a big scale or what? <laughs> you know? wow. That was the shortest sales pitch <laughs> <you know? laughs> ever. I don't know what's going on down there in Atlanta, but I saw, I, I don't know, every two weeks, it seems like you guys get a new sickle cell doctor from somewhere coming down there and tens of millions of dollars in funding. And I, I saw uh, Dr. Lamb has a oh my God, yes. million dollar grant or something. And uh, Vivian Sheehan's. Yeah. I mean, every every week yeah. you have a new uh, superstar. So, it's a powerhouse. It's a powerhouse. Well, so so first of all, I think you know uh, Atlanta is so well known for its historically black colleges, right? Colleges and universities. So there's a very solid black middle class in Atlanta. And you know, having lived in Minneapolis and in Pittsburgh, it is a very different experience uh, mm-hmm. to see and and very gratifying that given education, what can happen? You know, because a lot of these people went, came here, went to this uh, college and stayed on here. So, so that's uh, very big. And so, you know, we, we also have a lot of patients because that's Atlanta is 50% black. I think everybody knows uh, Fulton and DeKalb, you know, suddenly <laughs> these two counties that everybody right. knows about. Yes. <laughs> we never thought that would happen. People actually migrate to Atlanta if you have sickle cell disease in addition to people migrating to Atlanta. So usually the number of sickle cell patients that you have in a pediatric program remains static. It never changes because, you know, when they come of age, you transfer them to adults, right? We used to have 1,700 patients when I came here. We are like 2,100 patients in the wow. time that we have. Wow. So, so there's an active that's migration That's 2,100 pediatric patients. 2,100 pediatric patients. So that's got to be by far the biggest program in the country. It is. It is. And there are probably about 1,200 patients, adult patients. And we only have a part of Georgia. You know, Augusta has, you know, probably 800, 900 patients as well uh, that they follow, you know, in big parts of Georgia. So it's a very big population. And for some of the things that I do, you know, they did their first bone marrow transplant 28 years ago. So we've done like 124 transplants. And so there's people have seen how, you know, transplant can make a difference. And and so there's a very strong belief that people should be aware of their options. And if that is what is they choose to do, then we have the facility to do that. Wow. So it's been a great environment to, to work uh, here. Cheat Codes is brought to you by our founding sponsor, Global Blood Therapeutics. 
GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life-changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission-driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for sponsoring today's episode and serving the sickle cell community. One of the things that always intrigues me is, you know, you're, you're talking about the options that people have. And I always am intrigued by individuals like yourself who, who have been doing this, um, who have made such a mark in the area of cure. Mm-hmm. I always am intrigued by how that conversation goes. Like, I, I kind of sometimes wish I could be a fly on the wall when somebody like you is talking to a patient about cure in sickle cell disease and how you present that to patients. I wonder if you could give us a give us a glimpse of sort of how you began conversations around cure in sickle cell disease when you talk to patients and families. I think you have maybe 20 papers about this decision aids and yeah. educational materials and how to yeah. talk to patients. So really the world expert in this. No, it's quite fascinating. It's, it's one of the most fascinating conversations you can have uh, for a variety of reasons. Well, first of all, you talk to the person to see from whence they come. Why are they here? And, and quite often I have to explain to them, I'm not trying to dissuade you or persuade you. I just want to know why. And, and that's where you learn what is actually going on in people's hearts and minds. Um, so I spend, you know, it, it takes about an hour and a half to two hours. It's not a short conversation. But probably the first 15 minutes is just trying to understand what you want. Mm-hmm. And some of what I hear are just, it, it gives me a window into what's going on in their life, in their family, in their soul. And some of what I hear from children is just uh, enough to, you know, make me cry sometimes. An eight-year-old can say things like, you know, am I going, I'm going to die because of this, and I don't want to live like this anymore. To all the way to, I want to play football, and what kind of life is it if I can't play football? Well, I don't play football. <laughs> you know, my life is good enough for me. But for him, the fact that 12-year-old, that he can't play sports, you know, that he can't be with his friends, or that 14-year-old girl who can't, you know, Everything is fine, but I don't want to keep coming every month twice to get my blood transfusion Mm. and feel wiped out for two days. And the mother who says, you know, I am, this child is okay so long as I'm alive. What's going to happen after me? All my research is just listening to people, you know, and and tell tell them what it is that they want. So we really want to understand why. I can tell you, you know, mostly people want to transplant because they're done living the way they are uh, with what it is. But things are changing. So people now say, what is the quality of life? You know, I had gone through much of my adulthood before I heard the phrase quality of life. (laughs) But patients actually use the word quality of life. What quality of life is this? And even in the seven years that I've been here, now they say, I want to know all my options, Mm. which is such a change, you know. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's a transition. So somebody says you need to have your spleen taken out because you had splenic sequestration or you have avascular necrosis and you need hip surgery. And they're like, while I am considering all my options, why don't I go check out this bone marrow transplant? Or they say your, nine, your child is nine months old. We're going to recommend hydroxyurea. And they say, while we're doing hydroxyurea, I think it's some sort of chemotherapy. We're going to go talk about that bone marrow transplant, which is also chemotherapy. I don't know if it's something to do with the demographic here. The fact that we don't, uh, we offer transplant consult to anybody who wants it. So you don't have to have a donor. You don't have to be eligible for a clinical trial. You don't have to have any disease severity. If you want a transplant consult, we'll see you. And we'll see, if you happen to be in the hospital, and they'll call me and say, Krish, uh, you know, you think you have some time this afternoon? We have somebody here getting a blood transfusion. 
I'll show up. Somebody's on the weekend. And I'll say, can you come? They're admitted to hospital. Will you come and talk to them? To come back to your point, there's a lot of understanding involved because people have heard that transplant could cure, but they don't know what it involves. And there's just not enough time in a hematologist's office to learn all about that. Uh, when in Pittsburgh, I did both transplant and uh, sickle cell disease, my sickle cell patients would say, okay, this is a sickle cell visit. We will set up a separate appointment with you to talk about transplant. Uh, because between all the boxes you have to check off in sickle cell, you know, TCD, your blood tests, you know, right. what hydroxyurea, you know, all of that, there's no time to talk about transplant. So then you sort of have to start off from the basics uh, you know, people don't know what exactly a stem cell is because they've heard that they're worried about it in Congress. And I have to explain to them that's a pluripotent stem cell. We're talking blood-making stem cells. You know, what is a cell and what is hemoglobin? Because there's a lot of things that they've heard about since the you know beginning, but they haven't sort of totally, you know, some there are gaps. Uh, then you start talking chemotherapy and, you know, people's eyes start getting wider and wider. And I say to Mine them... Too. Yeah, <laughs> that if you're feeling like deer caught in headlights, then you're paying attention. This is serious stuff, chemotherapy, you know, and so we don't spare any details, not because we're trying to persuade or dissuade them, you know, explain what it is. Uh, meanwhile, you know, the if it's a lot of the time, the girl's already crying as soon as you hear about the hair loss. You know, there's other children who are very sensitive and so many times, I, I do this with the children there, and sometimes the child says, am I going to die? You know, and they're crying over there. But I think that we sort of try to put it in context that, you know, you're going to be in the hospital 40 days, or 10, 12 days is going to be pretty bad. You're going to be coming to the hot clinic quite a bunch, you know, maybe eight, 10 months. But if I asked you a year later, you're going to be off your pain medicines, you're going to be off hydroxyurea, you're going to be off transfusion, you know. Um, so football. What's that? You can play football. So, so this is so this is a process. Mostly, people leave shaken up because they weren't prepared for any of this information. The other part that happens is when we talk about fertility, because chemotherapy makes you infertile. For some people, that's the end of the conversation. One mother started wailing, you know, literally saying, you know, no, I don't want to do that. Or other mothers say, you know, we want to have a, I want those grandbabies, you know. Or, or I don't want to make a decision for my child, uh, you know, about their fertility when they're children uh, without their input. Uh, so uh, second cancer, you know, those are things that, so I think mostly people leave with, so we say, okay, you know, we talked about all of this stuff and here's a, you know, sickleoptions.org. You can go look at it. You can watch videos, you know, see what other people, real people's experiences. If you want, we can connect you with a family that has gone through this. So we go through all of that. And, and mostly, you know, depends on where they are. Some people have already decided they're going to go for a transplant. It's already been thought about, prayed over. They've met somebody in the playground who used to have sickle cell disease, and they've decided. Uh, a lot of people, this is their first uh, rodeo, you know, listening to this, and they have to think about it and pray over it. And usually it's a fairly long process to, you know, six months, one year, 10 years, you know, to make a decision to go to transplant. So that's typically what the conversation went until about two years ago. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're in a new exciting time, a new frontier. Yeah, so now we get a new breed of people. <laughs> so. <laughs> They're like, uh, we watched on 60 Minutes that you can get <laughs> stem cell. And I'm like, no, it's gene therapy, but that's okay, you know. Or uh, my friend from Michigan called and said, don't they have stuff like that available at your place? <laughs> mm -hmm. And or they, we heard this in NPR. So that's a whole other piece because people who had been thinking about transplant for the longest time, it wasn't an option or there were no unrelated donor available, suddenly this gene therapy could be an option. Usually, say you go through that whole discussion with people and they're not scared off. The secondary cancer didn't scare them. The infertility didn't scare them. 40 days in the hospital and infections. Mm -hmm. And they still say, I want to be cured. 
then next step would be brothers and sisters look for a match mm-hmm. and that and that's your best choice by far yeah now do you go a- after that if they don't have a match do you do unrelated donor transplants do you do so, cord transplants yeah, do you yeah. do uh haplo identical transplants yeah. yeah so all of the above what we've tried to do so if there is a sibling a full sibling then our sickle cell people have usually got an HLA type. So almost all, uh, always, if there is somebody, and, and so mostly all of this is the nurse practitioners and the hematologists in the sickle cell clinic who are the first point of contact saying, you know, there is a sibling, why not HLA type them? And so often they'll come to us with HLA typing. I think the outcomes with especially young patients are excellent for mat sibling donor transplant. So you know, if you're less than 13, if you will, I mean, younger is even better. You have a better than 90% chance of being cured of sickle cell disease, which is a huge deal. Um, of course, it comes in the context of, you know, pretty rough year and then going through chemotherapy and all of the pressure on the family and things like that. But when, think- when you get out the other side of that, though, you don't see a lot of graft versus host. I mean, really, the kids are cured and mostly doing really well. Well, so the younger the patient, the better they do. Uh, if you're 16, 17, 18, the risk for graft versus host disease starts going up. You know, it's never a walk in the park. I mean, anybody who tells you that have this transplant, it's going to be great is just plain lying. I mean, it's a it's a tough process, uh, but you can break it down. You're going to be in the hospital, we say 40 days. We keep getting better. Uh, it's sort of a biblical sounding 40 days, you know, but it's sort of more or less like that. We're in Lent now. So. What's, okay, that's good then. <laughs> but but it's even much, often much shorter, but 10, 12 days are really rough with mouth sores and fevers and nasogastric feeding and, and all of that. Uh, and then having to take medicines for eight months, 10 months, one year. Uh, and there are complications that you expect and don't expect and stuff, but mostly you can come out at the other end and mostly, uh, and I, you know, we have a clinic called an ex-sickle clinic for, for a clinic only for people who used to have sickle cell. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Very yeah. Cool. yeah. It's a multidisciplinary clinic and it's quite who, wonderful to go there. Who's part of that ex-sickle clinic? So, so uh, one of our uh, bone marrow transplant doctors, Dr. Ann Haight, actually started that many, many years ago. Uh, and then we have a hematologist who comes there, an endocrinologist who comes. We have physical therapists, and we're trying to get our psychologists to come. So a lot of the families, you know, uh, we actually have an active process of saying that, you know, you think of yourself as a sickle cell warrior right now, but you have to train to be a sickle cell vet, a veteran, you know, a veteran, because <laughs> wow. there are people who, like came out of, people who came out of Vietnam in the 70s and who still haven't got over the idea that they were in Vietnam and, you know, and the, all the tragedies, you know, sometimes your identity as uh, somebody who's a parent of a child with sickle cell is completely wrapped up in that. And and I've seen some heartrending situations where parents said, I don't know what to do with myself. I don't have a life anymore. I don't have a purpose in life anymore. Wow. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, when you do transplants, when people have chronic pain, I just had a call today from a patient that I transplanted 16 years ago. I hand out my cell phone number, so you can't be surprised why people call you, <laughs> you know, um, and she had pain and swelling and had gone to the hematologist and it wasn't sickle cell, but it was chronic pain, you know, just not uh, had the rehab. Uh, mm-hmm. And so a big part of it is preparing children to re-enter school, re-enter the workforce, have, you know, um, sort of um, to look forward for the future. So all of that uh, also happens. But to go back to, to your question, so we have clinical trials open for half-match uh, transplant, uh, seven out of eight match unrelated donor transplants, uh, match sibling donor transplants, uh, a clinical trial for patients without severe disease, you know, because a lot of patients say, why do you want us to wait till our child gets really sick? And then we have multiple gene therapy studies. So the idea is to have all the options available with the idea that, you know, everything is not going to be right for everybody. 
and we want to make sure that the right option is available for the right person. I have a question. Out of those 124 patients, you know, we talk about infertility, but I imagine some of them have had children. They have, but you know, uh, chemotherapy is very toxic. So we tell people that uh, know that you're likely to be infertile, but behave as if you're not. Behave as if you're fertile. Um, so well, it's premature menopause. Go ahead. Where Where are we with fertility preservation, pre-transplant, pre-cure? I mean, are, are, do sickle cell patients have trouble accessing those types of resources? Huge problem. It's a huge problem. So we have some foundation funding to do that. And even then it's difficult. All of our patients, like if they're young boys, there's a clinical trial in Pittsburgh. So I was like, I know where Pittsburgh is. Yeah. Just jump in your car and drive 10, year, 10 hours north and you'll be there. Um, and it's a 20-minute procedure, and they do a little needle biopsy under short anesthesia. And they actually save testicular tissue, even wow. in pre-pubertal children. And so we're opening these trials here um, so that, you know, the technology is moving forward that you can actually take, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, take immature testes, develop, you know, actual sperm from there. Cincinnati has done a great job, you know, doing uh, ovarian, you know, they just take out an ovary and we're opening those kinds of same sorts of protocols here as well. You know, you just have to figure out how to pay for these things, because if you right. bill it to the insurance, it's just not affordable. We work with our reproductive endocrinology institute. So if you've attained puberty, then, you know, they can stimulate the ovaries, collect a bunch of eggs and freeze them away. Uh, sperm banking is pretty straightforward for boys, but you know, uh, sometimes even just being in hydroxyurea or just having a sickle cell, they don't have any sperm to bank. Sure. Uh, but the biggest barriers, nobody's talked to them about it and nobody's, so when you're uh, having a transplant, uh, you, if you talk to a 19 year old, the last thing on his mind is advancing, preserving the human race by reproducing. <laughs> That's not in a social calendar. And, and, you know, it, it may be very different at age 25. So I tell people that when, or the mother says, I just want to get rid of this horrible disease and I don't care about fertility. So in general, people don't care about fertility, you know, when they have a serious disease until the day after they are cured of that disease. So you actually actively have to encourage people to do this. Uh, and there's a sort of an opportunity cost. You have an opportunity of doing this now uh, because you can't go back and undo what you did. Even though there's going to be costs, the main cost for fertility preservation comes when you're trying to conceive uh, with what you. Um, so uh, the technology is there. It's getting better. It's getting available to younger patients. Uh, costs are still a problem. And, you know, a lot of insurances just don't cover it. And a lot of centers are working to sort of roll in with other things like, you know, the gynecologist will do the ovary operation at the time when they're putting the, the central line. So there are different ways of trying to minimize. There are people who are doing GoFundMe, you know, to do things right. like that. So there's so many different ways uh, to advance that. Dr. C, you're working on something like a national uh, CBO-based operation to try to lobby for things around fertility preservation and sickle cell yeah so there's a there's an organization that's being run by a patient advocate named tiana wolford um, who had a failed transplant actually mm -hmm. um, and has had quite a journey with fertility infertility um, she started an organization called the sickle cell reproductive health education directive that she founded with kim smith whitley actually mm -hmm. and this this organization is now just coming about to, to really get active in this area so We'll probably, uh, you know, I, I work with them pretty closely, so we'll probably reach out to you and uh, pick your brain a little more on that. Yeah. You know, I've recently been talking to Lakia Bailey, Yeah. Um, you know, just about these things. And this is really important. And honestly, we have to think about this in the policy. Mm -hmm. You know, why would insurance not cover it? And so the way to think about it is like a uh, breast, uh, a mastectomy surgery. If you cover mastectomy, then you should cover implant, which is what they do. So then if we have a medical, you know, oophorectomy, if you will, then really insurance should cover fertility preservation technique. Right. So it's only because 
it's a failure of advocacy, if anything else. So there's an opportunity for advocacy here. So something I've been excitedly watching from afar is, you know, non-chemo methods of clearing out the bone marrow for transplant. Are you guys involved in any of that? Do you, do you well, that, uh, uh, this is really exciting. Future or? It absolutely is. The problem with being a bone marrow transplant doctor is our frame of reference, right? Mm. So we say, yeah, compared to what we used to do, we're doing less. But our patient says, you're doing plenty. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, is this crazy to wipe out my entire bone marrow, put me in the hospital for 40 days, you know, have all of this, and then, then I'm going to be infertile. Um, it is crazy. That's why a lot of people don't want to do this, even though they could potentially have a normal life. So now antibodies are coming, right? So it's like a smart bomb directed at a protein on the surface of the blood-making stem cells. And it goes and targets just that. So it's happening in immune deficiency disorders. I think that the threshold for it to work in sickle cell is higher. So it's not something that's quite around the corner because we've been discussing whether is this the next big thing, almost the next big thing. We just need to develop it further. Can you so, do it with a much lower dose of uh, myeloblation, like uh, much lower doses of busulfan plus, plus antibody drug conjugate? That, that's probably what might happen is that we may be able to give less chemotherapy, but unfortunately, with that, how, you know, you can, there's an actual formula like cyclophosphamide equivalence of how much is too much for testes and mm. how much is too much for ovaries, right? So we actually right. know right. stuff like that. But it is possible that we may have to end up doing uh, some combination of antibody and, and chemotherapy. Uh, but fertility is certainly uh, a major priority. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that, that's a really good segue into what my next question is for you, which is 10 years from now, mm -hmm. what does curative therapy look like in your ideal world? You know, um, it's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future, right? Of course. You know, the fascinating thing is uh, when I talk to people about gene therapy, you know, which is taking your own stem cells, blood making stem cells and genetically manipulating it and giving it, transplanting them back to you. I've had patients who had no idea what transplant was, who came to the consult thinking that they have to bring a donor from the street somehow. They had to go find them. Wow. And they're speaking a foreign language and there's an interpreter. Yeah. And 15 minutes into the conversation, they pick up on the fact that, oh, I don't need to put somebody else's cells in my body. You know, that's gotta be better than putting somebody else's cells in my body. Uh, so intrinsically, it makes a lot of sense if we can actually take the blood-making stem cells and fix them. And that technology is not that far. Okay, so, so the technology of taking a blood-making stem cells, well, the clinical trials are already beginning of actually correcting and not just adding a gene, not just turning on the fetal hemoglobin, but actually fixing your sickle cell mutation in your stem cells. Yeah. So that, I think, we will know in three to five years how that is going. The second part is, how much do you have to fix? Well, now there are drugs where you can take the blood-making stem cell and multiply it. Mm. Okay, so that's already been done in clinical trials. So if you didn't get a lot of, you know, correction, you could take the corrected stem cells and expand them. Okay. You can grow them and you can keep them growing because guess what? If you needed to do it again, it's sitting there. So, so there's that. Then the piece is, can we do this without chemotherapy? You know, that's the big unknown, right? So these things are in clinical trial for other disorders. So, so one of these days, somebody's going to figure this out. Mm -hmm. So if everything works out well, Nothing turns out, you know, like we plan, right? Life doesn't pan out that way. Yeah. That in 10 years, there's a very good possibility that we will be doing mostly autologous transplants. Mm. Transplants not from somebody else, 
because I tell my administrators that your whole model is got to change now. This has got to be auto transplant. Mm -hmm. If you're giving less conditioning regimen, you maybe don't have to admit people in the hospital for that long. And, you know, there's a difference when you do gene therapy and you use your own cells. You don't have six months and eight months of immune suppression. So this goes back to something I read in the beginning of my journey, you know, in 1993, that, oh, an intern diagnoses sickle cell disease and schedules a gene therapy for tomorrow morning. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, that's, it must have been a poet who came up with this. You know, they're far <laughs> ahead of reality. But, but it, it could be that this whole concept of living with sickle cell would be so yesterday, just like there's no such thing as living with leukemia anymore. Mm. You know, just or living with blindness or deafness, you know, it, is all going in that same way. So, so it might really change things, you know, and if we don't make people infertile with chemotherapy, if you don't cause cancer, unfortunately, we can cause cancer. You know, it may be a small risk, but it's a real risk. I think that that's where it might go. But at the same time, we might have another dozen drugs, True. right? I mean, who Absolutely. would have thought? For 25 years, we have one drug. For one year, we had two. And then we got two in one week. Yeah. I felt like I died and gone to heaven. <laughs> you know what's going the on here? The November to remember. Yeah. And yeah. I still remember the day, uh, November 5th, 2005, when we had an oral iron chelator, you know? Because <laughs> before that, we were giving Desferol and trying to learn the technology of making it more palatable. So I think with the number of things that are coming, there will be an active, maybe you don't have to do gene therapy. Maybe there'll be a drug that'll be even easier to do. Right. You know, um, in, in completely novel ways. Um, and the amount of, you know, uh, it was very depressing 10, 15 years ago to do clinical trials in sickle cell. Because trial after trial would go, you know, bust, you know. And we live in a completely different world. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't even know what we did to deserve this. You know? <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So that that's what I would think in 10 years from now. I love so it. My, I usually end my consult with saying, if you want one message about what the doctor said, and that message is one of hope. Hmm that this is a very hopeful time, you know, if you're dealing with sickle cell, if you're living with sickle cell, because we have so many it. options. I love it. Amazing. I feel inspired. Uh, you asked me to say what we talk about. This is what we talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Dr. Dr. Callahan, do you have anything else that you definitely want to check off our list while we have Dr. Krish? You know, we could probably talk all day. Forever. Forever. Um, <laughs> But uh, we'll de we'll definitely have to have you back on the podcast and and do some more of this. But uh... I want I want to do something before we go. I want to do a rapid fire session with you. Okay. All Are right. You up for it? I am. Okay, Doctor Callahan, I'm going to try this. Let's see how this goes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think Doctor Krish is the right person to try this on. All right. All right. Here we go. Are you a morning person or a night person? Morning. Coffee or tea? Tea. What's your favorite movie? Oh, the man from La Mancha. Oh, okay, okay. The direct link to sickle cell. Don <laughs> Quixote, <laughs> huh? Yes. What's your What's your favorite dessert? Oh God, uh, any ice cream. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Is there a city you haven't visited that you would like to? No, I've been that's, everywhere. That's the best answer you can have. What do you usually eat for breakfast? Cereal of any kind. <laughs> okay. Do, can, can you cook? And if so, what do you cook best? Oh, uh, I cook whatever my wife teaches me. So I'm teach, I'm, I'll am i cook quinoa. I'll make vegetables. Um, you know, I okay. can make uh, plenty of vegetables. I'm vegetarian, so it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> so. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. I'm going to ask you a tougher one. Pittsburgh or Atlanta? <laughs> oh, Hawks or Steelers? So can I answer a question in more than of one course. word? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Pittsburgh is is the friendliest place on earth that you can. Mm. Uh, it's beautiful. It's cold. It's like Minneapolis with hope. And it's just, uh, I think when I came to visit you all in Detroit, 
-hmm. you know, it's uh, what Detroit would want to be, and it probably is, you know, the the rejuvenation that's happened. We're getting there. Yep, you're getting there. I, I really believe so. Atlanta, the absence of snow is amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, when it snows in Chicago, it rains in, in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. When there's a hurricane in Florida, it rains in Atlanta. That's all happens. Mm -hmm. um, it's just amazing. I really love that just the impact of the black middle class in Atlanta is really impressive. Uh, and it's very striking, and you don't see that in too many places in the Midwest or uh, any other place. And I think that, you know, I work in a great place with lots of, uh, I and mean, I've had wonderful times in both the institutions. Um, so, so long answer, sorry. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> so, a few more window or aisle seat? Aisle. Straight, stretch out my legs. There's nothing to look outside anyway. Is there something that you can't do that you'd like to learn to do? I am actually learning uh, and teaching Sanskrit. Look at uh, that. Yeah, I, I teach uh, Sanskrit five hours a week. Wow. Uh, yeah, and so I just like to learn more languages, wow. many more languages. Uh, I, I speak, uh, yeah, several Indian languages, but, um, you know, I could connect English and Sanskrit. It's an Indo-European language, you know, it's a Proto-Indo-European language. Um, I love that. So I'd like to learn German. I'd like to learn Farsi because there's like all of these languages are connected. All right. The last one is not a rapid fire one, but this mm -hmm. is one that I want, I want to, I want to hear from you. If there is one piece of advice that you could go back and give yourself 30 years ago, what would you go back and tell yourself? Show up on time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 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 that's the best advice possible. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Dr. Krish, this was just so too much fun. Oh, I loved it. I'm sorry. I just kept chatting and didn't let you no, know. That's, that's <laughs> fantastic. fantastic. We, we're, yeah. we're so proud to be able to call you a colleague. We're so proud that you're part of our provider community. I, you know, I just, um, we, we look up to you in so many ways. And um, I think the patients are lucky to have somebody with your voice and your passion for them. So, so thank you for everything you do. Thank you. It's been a privilege. It's a, it's not just something I'm happy about. I'm just grateful every day that I get to do this. So thank Wonderful. you all. Appreciate Wonderful. it. Well, there you have it, Warriors. Dr. Lakshman Krishnamurthy. We call him Dr. Krish. That's all we have for you with this episode. There's nothing more that we can, we can say. Show up on time, guys, and keep living well with Sickle Cell. We'll catch you next time. Peace. Well, Warriors, we hope that uh, we hope that you enjoy this episode, and we really hope that you share this podcast with people you think could learn more about sickle cell disease. Go ahead and share it with your physician. Go ahead and walk into your appointment and say, "Hey, do you know about this podcast by these two crazy hematologists, Doctor Z and Doctor C? You should go listen to it. Let them know. Drop some knowledge on them too, and uh, you know, keep living well with sickle cell. Be safe. We'll be back, right, Doctor C? Yeah. We'll talk to you soon. All right, guys. Peace.